and welcome to our latest podcast in our series around buildings of the future. I'm Kaz Mohammed, the Vice President of Digital Energy at Schneider Electric, and today we will be exploring the importance of end-user engagement in smart buildings throughout the design, the construction, and the operation. I'm joined here today by Scott Smith, who is the Head of Sustainability at DAR UK. He's a principal member of DAR Group's sustainability team and has a broad experience across office, residential, retail, labs, and government building services design in his 30 plus years as a chartered mechanical engineer. Scott also manages the DAR UK Briam business in providing sustainable certification for projects in London and throughout the UK. Welcome, Scott. Hi, Kaz. So let's start with, where do you start with when you're looking to create a smart and sustainable estate? Well, in, in today's environment, which is, you know, looking at net zero carbon, you know, there's a lot of stuff. When you're looking at a sustainable estate, the very first thing is that you kind of need a, a way to look at the energy flows, how energy is being used on a campus or, or a state, which requires the, the need to create a, a networking system, uh, something that can generate and gather that data in a useful and, and easy way so that you can actually look at it and communicate and report this information and even analyze the data. So it, in, in my view, in the environment that we in, that is the very first thing that you need to do when you're looking at an estate. Okay, so really just kind of measuring exactly where you're at today and, and making sure that you've got all of them measuring points across an estate is, is really critical just to start from. Yeah, I mean, if you don't do that, then it's hard to, to assess what remedial action that you would need to do. Um, you know, if, if you have a, an estate with various um, aged buildings or you know, other assets that, that actually um, probably don't meet the today's criteria for energy efficiency and stuff, you kind of really need to, to know how that energy is going to be used. And if you're going to do remedial action, like say, uh, do a new facade or put new glazing in, you have to uh, kind of assess to, to, to see how much energy you think you're going to save if you do that, that, that action. So again, if you don't have that basis, if you do not have the ability to know what, how the energy is being used, it's very hard to actually kind of make real critical decisions about how you can reduce carbon or you can reduce the energy consumption or how to improve the asset in the estate. Again, it, it is my opinion or my view, but uh, you know that would be the bare minimum, the very first thing that you would need to do if you're looking at a, an estate to be able to, to start to even think about what you, you would need to do to refurbish or to, to put a new building in or anything like that. And what do you see as the, the kind of, I guess, the, the key opportunities and challenges around designing and constructing buildings and refurbs for, for end users? I mean, you're involved in that kind of consultancy piece with the design. You've probably had lots of experience working with end users. And what do you kind of see as the, the opportunities that, that are there and the challenges? Yeah, I mean, most of my career has been around kind of the, the design and of creating the systems and stuff, and also uh, working with the architects to create buildings and stuff that are very energy efficient. But, you know, some of the opportunities that I, I would see is that, um, 
especially like in refurbishment or, or other remedial projects that you can do with buildings is to um, obviously the easiest one is to create a better thermal performing building, whether that's improving the glazing, um, seeing if you can overclad or, or increasing the insulation and trying to bring these old buildings up to um, today's standards for to create kind of buildings that, that will be able to, to withstand the, the years of climate change and our targets to, to meet net zero. So, um, so the, those are kind of the, 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 the first things and first opportunities. The other one is to kind of to give buildings or tired buildings a new lease on life, creating the, the, the ability to adapt for that building. It might be that um, we, we could look at it and say that uh, the building is, is too far gone. It, it, it really needs to be demolished. But before you can actually make that real decision, you know, you have to look to see exactly how the building is, is operating, how it's going to be used, and whether you can adapt that use into the future. And, you know, and that kind of ties in with the opportunity to create more resilient buildings because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. I mean, we, a couple of years ago, we didn't know there was going to be a pandemic and that the working office lifestyle will be flipped on its head. So, so you know, we, it gives you opportunities to, to maybe be able to take an old building, an old 1980s or 1990s building or even 60s building, say that that's really has very poor thermal performance and, and um, rudimentary building services and create a, a better space, one that will be able to, to handle the impacts into the future. Yeah, if you want to talk about challenges, obviously there's a lot of old building stock out there and the environment is at a, at a place where you, you'll probably have to, 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 to get the buildings up to current standard might not be feasible, might not be able to do it. The re requirement for that building to say be an office or, or to be able to adapt an office into a, 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 an apartment block or student housing might not be there. And so you have to make the decision, is it better to demolish that building or do something else with it? Maybe it, it, you won't be able to, to create that building or refurbishment or do the remedial action to make the building into something else. Saying that, um, obviously you have to weigh that in with the impact of demolishing a building that it will have on the environment and then the impact and the embodied carbon of creating a brand new building, which is considerable. So there's all those challenges. Also, um, the, the challenges of, of design and construction at the moment, things are very different. When we, for instance, an example is we're, we're building a, a, a new headquarters building in London with Schneider Electric doing the, the smart buildings stuff. When we started designing that building five years ago, bodied carbon was just coming in as a topic to, to use as a criteria for constructing buildings. Now that we, are, we physically have it, it's a hot topic. It's something that is quite critical. Unfortunately for us, or we, we didn't design the building with embodied carbon in mind, maybe that would have changed some of our design decisions. At the time, we did measure the embodied carbon of the building that we were going to demolish and the building that we were going to create. So at least we, we did that. And that was about five years ago. So there, there's those challenges as well, you know, the new construction techniques, the new 
things that we, we would need to do for refurbishment. So it, it is kind of a complex issue. It's definitely definitely feels complex. And I think uh, that the landscape when we've, when we've spoken on some of the past podcasts as well, it's not always going to be clear cut, I think, with uh, how end users and developers ultimately proceed here. But I, I think what you've mentioned there, the actual opportunity we have for retrofitting and actually thinking a little bit differently with respect to our existing buildings is, is really important, especially as you're highlighting there, just how much of that is going to remain going forward. And um, I think this is not just a, a challenge on new buildings, but ultimately making sure we take care of the existing. But also, I mean, I, th- I think it's a good point, Scott, that you've highlighted there around the advancements, you know, just within that four or five year period, how certain guidelines and topics have, you know, accelerated. And I'm sure there's a bunch of technology as well that's accelerated at the same time. And it's how do you kind of capture the latest and greatest in in the way you're designing on that current building to make sure it's uh, it's still kind of relevant. Yeah, I mean that that's kind of one of the the the, the not not worries, but one of the things that you, you keep in mind. You know, it takes years to obviously design and build a, a major building these days. And when you start off a project, you know the world might be different when it's actually built and you know the the design criteria that you put in at the beginning of the building when you start designing it might have changed a lot so it, it really is becoming more critical to design those adaptable spaces uh, buildings that are able to adapt buildings that have the ability to adapt its building service strategy throughout its lifetime a lot of buildings you know in the past you would put in a boiler system with radiators and it pretty much sets that building's whole life of gas consumption and heating under a a, a typical kind of heating regime where nowadays i would be thinking twice whether we put in a boiler installation and be looking at some type of either air source or ground source heat pump situation which requires a different type of heating regime. So maybe radiators are not the way to go. Maybe it's underfloor heating, which suits that better, or you know, fan coil units. Or maybe it's, it's um, larger radiators to take into a, a lower heating regime. So I think flexibility and adaptability, not just with building services, but also in architecture, will have to be a, a fundamental concern when you're going forward in, in, in designing buildings. For sure, for sure. Um, so I just want to go back to something, Scott, you mentioned there around, I guess, embodied carbon. And when we're thinking about, yes, some of the existing stock isn't going to be suitable. And actually, there might well be a balance to say it's better to, to start again, start afresh here. And obviously, there's, there's new builds as well going up. How do you feel the construction industry is kind of tackling, I guess, embodied carbon in in that construction phase? A bit mixed views. I mean, right now we are measuring embodied carbon. In my experience, and maybe it's just because the embodied carbon, the ability to measure embodied carbon is relatively new. The ability to start making informed design decisions like whether you go with a steel frame building or is it concrete? Um, Obviously concrete has a higher embodied carbon, but then can you get more aggregates inside the the concrete to to reduce that? All these major kind of 
fundamental decisions at the beginning does steer you down a different path on how the building will perform and behave. And the fact that uh, we're still in our infancy about how to, to implement that. What I find now is that we kind of, you know, sounds kind of bad, but we, we measure or calculate the embodied carbon and say, oh, well, that's, that's what it is. I think uh, the RIBA and, and some other places actually give you targets of what is good and bad in an embodied carbon. By the time you measure the embodied carbon of your design and you're going through the tendering process, it's really too late. All you can say is, oh, well, I've hit the bad criteria or I'm moderate. You know, it's very few buildings I've come across or even read in any literature that actually tried to hit a very low carbon, low embodied carbon target at the moment. And it goes the same with like, um, EPD certificates or the LCA of products in, and supply chains, you know, you, you, you basically specify a product that has a embodied carbon associated with it. You've got your certificate, you know, and if you're looking at BREAM, it's a tick or lead as well. You, you know, the United States Sustainable Certification System, if you can show you have an EPD certificate for a product, you, 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 Kind of get the, the credit or you get the, the evidence, but there's nothing that says, oh, you get more credits if you have changed one um, material for next to, to lower that embodied carbon yet. It's coming. I, I can see it coming in the next probably BREAM iterations that you get credits for the lower embodied score. But at the moment, no, just as long as you, you, you do a calculation, that's what you can do. I guess the, the, we'll have to wait and see how, how it all pans out. Okay, no, interesting. I guess we're, we're at that early stage of the, the measuring taking place and now we're going to potentially move into more guidelines and this is where you need to get to. And then we start to see, okay, how does that become a little bit more sophisticated in terms of that overall construction design and selection of, like you said, materials and methods and um, ways to ultimately construct. So Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier as well, um, Scott, which was pretty interesting about the, um, I think it was one of the examples you used, which was your headquarters, but ultimately this kind of model where you started to, to work closely with the different parts of the supply chain. And we've heard this more and more um, over the last few years, this idea of, it's called IPD, this integrated project delivery. Um, what, what do you know about this? What is it and, and what do you see as the benefits? I mean, it, it, it's a really good kind of um, system in in theory for construction. You know, I mean, it, it's really the the kind of um, natural progression of design build, where you you have the a design team that comes up with a information for a tender package. You get a design build contractor and you say, "This is roughly what I want to do," and then the contractor takes that on. And this is my opinion; is probably a bit controversial. Maybe I, I'm I'm being a bit harsh, but uh, it basically design build was kind of meant to kind of reduce the, the quality, reduce the money for any construction, get it fast, get it done. The building looks roughly the, the right shape. It does kind of what you wanted it to do. And, and that's it. Well, IDP is more where you kind of have a, a kind of master builder, kind of going back into medieval times when you're building a cathedral, where, where you have a, a designer, whether that's the architect or, 
or, or somebody else in the kind of design team that could be also the contractor or maybe the engineer who, who basically has his team around him of all the, the, the specialist industries and the contractor that all come together at the very beginning of the project to, to um, create the building or the design. And, and in theory, and in, it's kind of designed to reduce waste, bring up the quality. It's not about driving down the cost. It's basically trying to get a good product. And in terms of sustainability, that's kind of where sustainability has been let down in the construction process is that the innovation, the, the, the quality that you really need in one of the, these high-tech smart buildings is not there because somehow through no fault of anybody in particular that you know, the, the, the quality and the, the workmanship has ne never been there. So, so in a way, it's the evolution of, of design build is, is the integrated design process. Now, the reason why I'm saying in theory is because in reality, when we've attempted or I've been part of projects globally that has tried to do this, it really requires the client to be educated and understanding to create that team. And it has to be client-led. Whoever's going to be building the project needs to instill that this is how it's going to be. It can't become, well, it never really works from the bottom up where you have, let's say, an architect who says we're going to do that. Well, obviously, there's monetary concerns. The client has a budget. You'd rather go with more of a design build philosophy than an IDP philosophy. Also, if, if it's not constantly looked at and the integrated design process isn't constantly reinvigorated, then people tend to go back into their own old silos of, I'm the architect, I only do the architecture, I'm the engineer, I only do the engineering, I'm the contractor, I want to do it at, in the easiest way. So there, there's a lot of friction to, to make it work as ideally as it should. Not to say that, you know, if you have a small, super high-tech, sustainable project using the IDP model, would probably be the best way because you'd imagine that the client really wants the guy who's actually paying for it really wants that high quality complexity and it needs to be borne out by a really good well-working integrated design team for other projects that you know are are more money driven it's harder to do for sure for sure so i mean i, I guess the way i kind of visualize it is that you know in today's world it's very, uh, very much based on hierarchy of, you know, how we go about the actual design and then construction um, with the client ultimately at the top, but not being able to connect maybe all of the different facets of that hierarchy. And what we're saying here is we put this kind of critical piece in the middle of all of that, which helps all of the, the parts of the supply chain to actually collaborate and Maybe there's some friction with that, but that friction is there to actually drive the client demands and needs. So the client is clear, this is what I want. Actually pushing that through all the way through that build and ultimately construction and then the operation phase as well. And everything's being kind of thought of um, through that kind of linkage. So makes makes absolute sense. We're not really changing the structure of that hierarchy, but we're just making it being a bit more cohesive, let's say. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, 
So a little bit, I guess you, you mentioned there about some of the challenges as well around sustainability and ultimately not meeting some of the, the requirements around that. I'm interested to know, so we talk about the, the CapEx phase and the refurbishment phase and the work and the whole design principles being done. And, you know, sometimes we do a great job in that aspect and think, right, job done and kind of move on. What do you see in terms of some of the, the challenges and how do we ensure that sustainability performance really continues into the actual operational phase and maintenance phase of a building? What, what kind of advice can you give to our, uh, our customers? Well, I think nowadays, you know, in, in, in modern buildings and, and especially now when we've, we've got the, the amount of sensors and we have the ability that we can gather a lot of information on a building and how it operates. Yeah, and, and it goes back to the Schneider Exo structure and the, the, the data lakes that we, we want to create for buildings because we design really complex systems now that are on a, not really a knife edge, but they, they can easily go out of, of calibration or that there's things that, that, that will happen in the course of the operation of the building that, that uh, needs to be flagged up, that um, even with the, 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 the best flood-wired, uh, flood-censored buildings, if you're not on top of it, if you don't have the maintenance regimes and routines that are there, and when things go out of um, kind of parameters and, and are not flagged up, then everything just kind of falls apart. There's a kind of cascading collapse of, of the, the system so that it, it's not running at, at optimum efficiency. It, it's, it's fighting itself. Something is broken. And, and, and because the buildings that we're building now are, are very sophisticated, something not right will cause other problems down a kind of a, a cascading chain. So you have to have the systems in place that are able to do that. And with having the, the analytical aspects and the sensor and the data lake, it, it is kind of critical now that we, we have um, the ability to know when things are, are not optimum, things are not being maintained properly. And so we know now when a building is, is not really operating as it should. In the past, we would build a, a building, we'd have a, some of the sensors, we would know if a pump went out and it had to go into the standby, to the standby pump. But uh, it, it, it was always in the past where, for me as a designer, I would design something, get it built, and then run away from it and hope it never have to hear from it, the building again. And the poor maintenance guy, would run something until something broke or somebody was really complaining because they're either hot or too cold. And then they would go in and, and try to sort it out. We can't operate that way anymore. You know, that, 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 that kind of old style, a building is a box. And as long as, you know, you don't get any complaints, then, then everything is all right. No, we need to, to have the, the systems in place, the sensors that are in place and the analytics as well that will allow us to, to really keep everything operating in the, uh, kind of a very limited band of, of, of efficiency and stuff. And, and coming back to the other thing, as we get closer and closer to meeting net zero carbon targets, going back to the original question about campuses and stuff, if we are really true to our word and committed to net zero carbon, the energy that we expend 
that can't be dealt with in remediation will have to be paid for by offsetting. So the higher the energy that we use or the more carbon emissions that our buildings and our assets are providing uh, will mean that each company will have to pay more in the offsetting strategies that, that they need to put in place to meet their not net zero carbon targets. So again, there's more emphasis on the operation and maintenance of buildings than there has been in the past if net zero carbon and meeting our targets is going to be achieved. Okay, thank you, Scott. Um, so we're coming to, to the end of the, this, uh, this podcast. Um, one last question, when we've talked about it over the last series of podcasts, we've asked a question around some of the, the returning to the office and trying to get different kind of views on that. So what, what's your view going forward? What do you see as the, the, the buildings as a destination and what do you think buildings purpose is going to be going forward? Well, my DAR UK does a lot of kind of thinking around the urban environment and master planning, especially around the world globally, but uh, also in the UK. And our view, looking at uh, other people's opinions and stuff, is that the office space, because of the pandemic and the way we're now working post-pandemic, is going to be more of a meeting space, more of a, a knowledge hub where office workers and employees will come in to, to have critical meetings and um, exchange views and stuff in very sharp and intense sessions, and then go back to, to either working in a, a more kind of loose home environment situation or flexible working hours. Um, and also, as we're finding out, we, we are able to do a lot of stuff wherever we are in the world. So, you know, I, I have colleagues, especially in the Middle East, that I work with quite closely day in, day out through our meetings and, and stuff. So you don't really need to have a, a personal, physical base going forward, I, I, I believe. And, you know, that's what I, I think. And that uh, offices will be more adaptable, more fluid spaces for having those critical face-to-face -face meetings and doing other kind of critical things and then allowing the employees the flexibility to, to be anywhere else in the world and bring other people in. That does mean that office spaces will have to be very well connected to the internet, having abilities to have very good communication spaces, audiovisual spaces, um, intimate kind of one-on-one -on -one so that people can actually have their, their kind of Zoom meetings or their, their um, internet meetings in quiet spaces. So it's going to be that. And that you having that set desk where it's your desk might not be a, a thing anymore. It'll be a hot desking situation where you came in, sat down, do what you need to do, meet your colleagues if you need to, and then you would go off to wherever else you are in the world to, to, to deal with other things. So um, that's kind of my, my personal opinion and from what I, I think is, is going to happen from now on. I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of consensus across the buildings are still important as a destination, but ultimately the purpose is going to change to this collaborative, like I said, critical type of scenarios and making sure that the buildings are fully connected, 
fully digitized in order to kind of cope with that demand is, is really important. So thank you for, for your views on that, Scott. Um, so it's been great speaking to you and, and, and listening to you, Scott. Um, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, please remember to hit subscribe and I look forward to speaking to you again on the next podcast.